0: Good morning again. It is a great day, isn't it, it's a wonderful day. Uh, I, though, have some bad news to bring this morning. There's always bad news, there's always bad news in the news and uh, government, local tragedies, things like that. But this is the kind of bad news that just really kind of hits you on the ground level for some of us. I'm sure that there are some people in our congregation that took this news this last couple of weeks maybe especially hard, and it was, well, there we go. It It was about this. Right, all this last week or a week and a half or so, uh, news outlets have been letting us know that a pretty comprehensive study conducted over decades, diet drinks, diet sodas like Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, whatever the poison has been that you've chosen over the last few decades really has been poison. (laughs) If you're of a certain demographic, In fact, the study was done, uh, women ages 49, 50, ages 50 to 79, almost 80,000 of them, all the way back to 1973, tracked their intake of diet sodas. And the data says that women who drank two or more diet sodas a day were 23% more likely to have a stroke, 31% more likely to have a clot-caused stroke, I think they call it an isemic stroke or something, 29% more likely to develop heart disease that would result in a heart attack, fatal or non-fatal, but a heart attack, and just 16% more likely to die from any cause. So apparently, drinking diet soda ups your chance of just dying. <laughs> I don't know, it makes you a more reckless driver or things tend to fall from heights onto your head for some reason, That you just die more often if you drink diet soda. And this is the bad news for so many because we all know people. You just, you want a soda. And maybe you were that person who said to themselves, oh, I can have a can of soda because it's, uh, it's Coke Zero. There's, there's no calories. There's no caffeine. There's no consequences. All the taste, but none of the ramifications, right? But then a study like this comes along. It just upsets your whole apple cart. That these joys in life that brighten our day that we cling to, one by one, the men in the lab coats find danger after danger after danger for, for us. For us, when we were growing up, some of us, we remember this, for us it was eggs. You can't have three eggs every morning anymore because it'll just kill you, give you heart disease. And then it was butter. You know, I remember butter's evil now. You, know, you can't have butter on your toast. You go to that I hop you can't have the big scoop of, of butter on the top of your pancakes, and so you resort to margarine. And then you learn, oh, well, you just might as well be shooting yourself in the head if you eat margarine, margarine is much <laughs> worse for you, right? It's, you hear, here's, here's a scoop full of trans fat, put it in your mouth. <laughs> and the, the, the morning, next one, salt, salt all the time. And then, my culture, MSG. And suddenly Chinese people just couldn't eat anything for dinner ever again. (laughs) Now it's sugar and processed foods, carbohydrates, the the pasta that we love, the bread that we love. The warnings come so fast and furious. Our lives are inundated every day with this new insidious killer. A new black box warning that the Surgeon General is saying, you you just can't have that anymore. That's a a big no-no for you. So much so that after a while we begin to turn off all of the messages. It might kill me, but what doesn't anymore? They get to tell me I can't eat anything or, or breathe the air anymore. And so we begin to choose and pick the warnings that we want to hear that are convenient for us. This morning, though, Jesus pauses and he has a discussion with a young man who is seemingly doing everything by the book, everything right. And Jesus issues a red alert, a huge, a dire warning, one deadly competitor to allegiance to him. One warning that we as believers are all to heed. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with our, to our passages this morning. It's Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26. Matthew 19, 16 through 26. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. You can follow up here with us. This is Jesus' warning. Matthew writes this. And someone came to him. And this is, this is someone coming to Jesus. So someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young, man said, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it's, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible right off. You can see that the stern warning that Jesus is issuing is, uh, it's a warning against riches, money, wealth. Jesus first says to this man, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. These are pretty simple Uh, Warnings, pretty simple commands in terms of understanding, but terribly difficult in terms of application. And that's why we've included these warnings in our Sunday series that we started last week, the series that we've titled Uncomfortable, The Shocking Words of Jesus, that we're studying these, these, these sayings of Jesus that interpretationally can sometimes be difficult. They might stump us when we read them. It might take us a little study in order to understand them. But even more so, These are statements that Jesus makes which are uncomfortable and they're shocking because they're a challenge in terms of living them out day to day. A challenge in terms of heeding their warnings and their prescriptions in our lives. And so really the great difficulty is a difficulty in real life discipleship. Uncomfortable sayings like, oh, you gotta forgive your brother 70 times, seven times. Or if your right eye causes you to stumble, you gotta pluck it out and throw it away from you. Or last week, uh, We're to hate those in our family in comparison to our love for Jesus. So how are we to apply this, this singular shocking and uncomfortable warning of Jesus's? So let's go to our passage and first see how it unfolds for us. It unfolds in three snapshots. You can see that in your note sheet there if you've got your bulletins there. Three snapshots. It opens with the first of which we might call the confident questioner. The confident questioner. And the confident questioner, of course, is just this young man, this rich young man. And we meet him in verse 16. Passage doesn't immediately identify him as young or rich, but as we go through the passage, we find these things to be true about him. And this young man begins with this question Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What the man is asking, sure, it's about heaven. It's about going to heaven. But the understanding of eternal life, in Hebrew thought at the time, is much more full-orbed, more than just going to heaven. The young man is asking about what good thing he needed to do to be living the kind of life that was approved by God, blessed by God, that he would be in the grace of God. And this question was not uncommon. There was a belief at the time that there was a singular command that one could obey somewhere in order to gain entrance into life with God. Uh, Bible scholar D.A. Carson, he says this, he comments, many Jews believe that a specific act of goodness could win eternal life. And this young man, who assumed this opinion was correct, seeks Jesus' view as to what that act might be. So that's the heart of the question. He's looking for Jesus to give him that one secret command that lever that would give him leverage so that God's good graces would be upon him. And Jesus answers the man first, as Jesus commonly does, with a question that makes this man sure that, about what he's actually asking, about Jesus' own authority. Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus just setting the stage here. He's making sure that this young man knows. Do you know who you're talking to? Jesus is the one who is good. And in this, Jesus is asserting his goodness, he's asserting his authority, and he's, a, he's really asserting his deity. Only God is truly good. And only so, so only God Himself can answer this question. And then Jesus answered. To enter the kingdom, you gotta, you got to keep the commandments. And the young man fires back with this follow-up. And this seems to confirm that he believes that there's some singular or maybe a cocktail of commands that will gain him entrance into God's kingdom. He says, which, which ones, which commands do I need to follow? To which Jesus responds with a list that seems tailored to what Jesus knows about this man. He responds with the commands that focus all around the treatment of others from the Ten Commandments don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your parents. And then he tops it off with this great general command you shall love your neighbor as as yourself. It's a tall order. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's a list of commands that all of, all of us try and obey these commands, but none of us have done so completely and perfectly. Especially the command to love our neighbors as ourselves every single day. But Matthew relates to us that this young man, he seems to believe that he's done it. He's fulfilled every single one of these commands. All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? And so this opening snapshot This confident young man who seems to think very highly of his adherence to God's commandments. But at the same time, we sense that he senses that all this rule following, it's it's not enough. There's got to be more. He doesn't think that he has this elusive eternal life, that that spiritual secret. There must be more to do. And that's where we come to our second snapshot. Our second snapshot we're going to call the revealing command the revealing command. And this is where we get the sense that Jesus and his knowledge of this young man has been leading this young man to a place where Jesus can break through to him. Jesus gives this compound command to the young man. First part of the command is, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And perhaps this is one part of the shockingness and uncomfortableness that we're we're all shocked and uncomfortable with. It seems that Jesus is saying that selling everything one has is a prerequisite to opening the door to eternal life. But we have to take this into context. Jesus pairs this command to this man with the next command, and that is, and come, follow me. What Jesus is doing is asking this young man, of this young man, unqualified discipleship, unqualified discipleship, acceptance of Jesus's lordship over his life and it's no different than how Jesus calls anybody else in the gospels he calls the disciples he says follow me and I will make you fishers of men instead of fishermen right Uh, it's another would-be follower follower who values his home he says well you have to be ready to not have a home the son of man has nowhere to lay his head To another who wants to wait until his parents pass away, he says, let the dead bury their dead. You, come follow me. Jesus' call to everyone is to abandon their attachments in favor of him. Jesus is asking this young man to sell everything and give it to the poor because that man's wealth is the singular stumbling block to allegiance to Jesus. And allegiance to Jesus, following Jesus, recognizing Jesus as the Savior, well, that's the one command that we all need to follow. So the emphasis of this command is follow Jesus. But in order to follow Jesus, Jesus knew that this young man had this one hurdle, this one competing interest that was more of a master in his life than wanting eternal life with Jesus. And that hurdle, of course, was wealth. Jesus pinpoints it. And we see how Jesus is 100% correct by seeing verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Whole dialogue, all of it, in retrospect, is Jesus leading this man to this one single point where the man could see he might have been good at following moral commands, general moral rules, but eternal life is not about that. It's about accepting Jesus for who Jesus is, the one who guides us and saves us and directs us as we live each single day with him. And nothing can compete with that allegiance to Jesus. Not our relationships. Pastor Dean went into that last week. Uh, from our first passages in the series, not wealth, wealth can't get in the way, not our own vision of what we want God to be like, not our own image or dream for our own lives, none of that can get in the way of our allegiance to Jesus. Salvation is coming before God, so broken over our own inability and our own sin and our own need for forgiveness, Jesus' sacrifice and his love for us become everything to us. Jesus' revealing command. It just simply reveals that this young man desired eternal life, sure he did, only as long as eternal life meant that he could live it on his own terms. Only as long as he didn't have to give up the thing that was dear to him, and that was his wealth. Leads us to our third snapshot. Third snapshot is the comprehensive principle. And the comprehensive principle is what Jesus explains to his disciples, that this attachment to wealth, it wasn't just the rich young man's difficulty, he says, truly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, uh, Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, as is the case for this man, wealth competes for all of our affection and all of our allegiance. We follow wealth because wealth feeds our status, it feeds our appetites, it feeds our sense of identity and our sense of security. And so when given a choice, someone who has pursued wealth all of their lives, they're going to have a hard time choosing to then follow God and God's kingdom and eternal life with God. How hard? Well, Jesus says this is as hard as a camel threading itself through the eye of a needle, which was the common figure of speech of the day for, well, yeah, that's that's pretty much impossible. You can't do that. Some people have taught this passage, I know, I know this because I've heard it so many times. And brought up, they famously brought up that there's this gate in Jerusalem called the needle gate. And you can get your camel through that needle gate if you just take everything off of your camel. So, oh, just unburden yourself. And, and you can get yourself into heaven. Visually illustrating that the wealthy, you can, you can get saved. You just get rid of your baggage. Well, it preaches really great. <laughs> That's something that I would love as an illustration, but upon further research, there really is no such thing um, as uh, historically, archaeologically, nobody's really found a needle gate. Any of that evidence, is, it's not there. Actually, there is evidence, though, that this is a figure of speech about camels and eyes of needles expressing, well, this is just, that's just impossible. You can't do that at all. Jesus is really saying it's impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And this is a terrible surprise to the disciples because this went against the grain of popular wisdom at the time their exclamation is well well then who can be saved popular wisdom at the time was very very close to what uh, i guess what we call prosperity theology today that the closer you are to god the more god blesses you with stuff and material riches so that the rich in that economy in their culture they thought oh they must be much more likely to be going to heaven and and having eternal life. But Jesus says, no, no. It's impossible for what you do to cause you to gain eternal life. One just simply does not get into the kingdom of God because of their wealth. People don't get into the kingdom of of God because of obeying commands. Uh, people, People just don't get into God's kingdom at all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do people get into the kingdom of God? Verse 26, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God brings us into his kingdom. God quickens our hearts. God gives us the ability to respond to him and follow him. God sends Jesus. Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus is resurrected. And we are forgiven by Christ dying for what we ought to have died for. It's all a work of God. Jesus saves us. And so we see that this interaction with this young man is very much like, well, just about every other interaction that uh, Jesus has with people who think that there's some way that they can get into the kingdom on their own. Jesus, knowing that we want to work for ourselves into God's favor, chooses that one thing that has a hold on people's hearts, whether it's wealth or it's who they love as a neighbor or their desire to please their family or their status in the community. And Jesus shines a light on that attachment. So these would-be disciples would be challenged to throw themselves on the mercy of God and say, I can't do it. And admit their own inability to be perfect as God requires us to be perfect. This is the lesson this encounter with the rich young man teaches. But for us, what does that mean? How do we apply this narrative? A couple of applications. The first is to change the question. Change the question altogether. Because we don't always realize it, But we're asking the same question of God all of the time that this rich young man was asking. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, in our minds, the question might look like that. Or the question might take the form, what do I have to do today to feel more secure? Or what must I do that I complete all of my obligations to my boss, or to my family, so that people like me. Or so I complete the next step in financial security and I feel better about where we're going. Or that goal at work, so that people see me as confident, or as competent, or that I feel satisfied. We just like the rich man, whenever we are asking, What's that missing thing that I have to do today or I have to do with my life so that I feel better about myself or I get to some goal of self-actualization or satisfaction? But Jesus flips the script with this narrative. And the, the point is to redirect our attention from our work to what God has done so that when we wake up every single morning, instead of thinking of all the necessary things that we need to do, in order to get to this raft of elusive goals that we have for ourselves, we think of Christ instead. And we think of Christ's work. And we ask ourselves, instead of that, what good things did Christ do so that I could obtain eternal life? What good things did Christ do so that I could obtain eternal life? Jesus is informing us that with people entering his kingdom, it's impossible. We're sinful, we're incapable, we fall short, we misplace our allegiances. But with God, all things are possible because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we, as we believe in him, can have eternal life. And so every day we need to remind ourselves of these truths, what we call gospel truths, that these truths about what God has done, through the work of Jesus in our lives, truths that have already been accomplished so we don't have to do them anymore, that those who have believed in Christ's name have been given the right to be called children of God, sons and daughters of the kingdom, that those who have confessed their sins, he has been faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness, that he's predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. He's reserved for us an inheritance which is unshakable. He's always with us, even to the end of the age. What good work did Christ do so that I could enter the kingdom of God and eternal life? He did everything. And this is vital because the great lure of our souls away from God is this feeling of dissatisfaction. It's this feeling of emptiness that we are one good thing away from being whole. That this one prize that we need to give our everything to go out and get. I I don't know what shows up on your Facebook feed. My Facebook ads are a little bit different than yours probably. But for me, at least recently, Facebook has been trying to sell me on this website that gives classes. It's called Masterclass, you've seen this. If you're in the entertainment industry, you probably have gotten this ad as well. If you subscribe to the website, Steve Martin will teach you how to be funny. Stephen Curry will teach you how to dominate your friends in basketball. You probably are not familiar with this. Daniel Negroni will teach you how to beat all of your friends at poker. Gordon Ramsay will teach you how to cook. Malcolm Gladwell, to be a better writer. I always watch the commercials because they're fascinating because these people are masters in whatever they do. But the most intriguing to me was Ron Howard, who uh, he teaches this whole course on directing. Because, of course, his commercial is going to be the best because he probably directed it. Uh, (laughs) But also because he opens with this quote. They say, there are only seven stories. I think there might only be one story. They say that there are only seven stories. I think there might only be one story. In other words, as diverse as mer- movies are, there's really only one theme. You're watching the same thing over and over and over again. If you watch the Oscars tonight, maybe you'll kind of come to that conclusion. <laughs> but all of this diversity, all of them, if you reflect on what he's saying, you realize he's right. All of our stories, all of our movies are about one thing our pursuit our pursuit of something we feel is missing that epic quest of the protagonist to get that something that's what all of our stories are about balance in the force safety from the monster true love <laughs> i couldn't resist that money every heist movie is about Money, getting the money, family, justice, vengeance, whatever it might be. This is every story, it's every movie, and for us, it can be the story of our lives. A frantic pursuit of that thing that we feel is missing. We have this need to complete, and if every day we wake up and we ask ourselves, what good thing, what good things do I have to do today to feel complete and satisfied. We start sacrificing everything to fill that vacuum. Sacrifice our relationships, our tempers, our resources, our time, our energy, our allegiance to Christ to fill that void. The irony is that Christ has done it already, done everything, everything necessary for eternal life. That is our first application. Change the question of what we need to what what has Christ done? and already won through his life and death and resurrection. That leads to our second application, which is pretty transparent. (laughs) If you haven't gotten that yet, it's been knocking on your door. And it's the big warning. It's the big warning. Be wary of wealth. Because if we had a spiritual black box warning, sirens and alarms that are going off, that God would be signaling danger of, it would be the lures and temptations of wealth. Because wealth tries to convince us that it can fulfill us that it will fill that vacuum. We tie wealth to status, we tie it to success, to safety, to arrival, because even in our spiritual communities, we link wealth to responsibility, and we link wealth to capability and to satisfaction. This is why Christ issues this very warning. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, because the lure of wealth is special. The Bible does not say the love of fame is the root of all sorts of evil. It does not say the love of sex is the root of all sorts of evil. That The love of power is the root of all evil. But it does say the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So the lure of wealth, not even just the lure of wealth, but not being wealthy itself, the lure of wealth is the sickness which threatens us all. But Jesus gives an indication of how we can understand our own hearts, how given over to wealth we might be. Here he says, could we do it? Could we at Christ's command, sell what we have and give it to the poor? Would we admit that all we have is Christ's and that we are just stewards of what we have? That's what Christ is asking here. Which is our master? Which do we pursue? Which could we do without? Wealth or Jesus? Is money that one thing that we feel like we have to pursue and that fulfills us? Or do we recognize that Christ has already filled us and filled that emptiness with what he's done on the cross? Now, as we end, I know this is unprecedented. Usually we just want to leave the Sunday sermon behind us and go home. Um, but on your note sheets, go ahead. You can open that note sheet this morning. I've included a website. And it links to a page with an article called, Are You a Spender, Saver, or Steward? Which is a little test for us to take about how we treat money. And the author asserts this, if spenders are thinking of today, savers are thinking about tomorrow, stewards are thinking of eternity. In other words, spenders, if you think that you're the spender in in your family, maybe you're the one that thinks of fulfillment through things like enjoyment of the moment. That's gonna fulfill me. Luxuries will fulfill me. Pleasures will fulfill me. Building memories today for tomorrow will fulfill me. Savers, on the other hand, are thinking of fulfillment through things like security and safety and flexibility for tomorrow. After, after we retire, we could do whatever we want. That's the need that they are fulfilling, the void that they feel inside them. But stewards know that their needs are already fulfilled. So they're free to ask of God, this is your money, God. It's all yours, God. In what way do you want me to use it today? In what ways do you want your money used to bless others or to provide for my family or to provide for myself, do the things that need to be taken care of? But there's no attachment. There's no threat to my own fulfillment because God fills. And this is the story of this young man. It's a cautionary tale of the pull of wealth that we all fill on our lives. It's kind of the the warning, the bad news, but the good news is this, that God has done all of the good things necessary for eternal life, and it's much more wonderful than the wealth that we pursue and the emptiness that we try and fill. We can enter into freedom to heed Jesus' call to follow.